Our speaker for this morning is Dr. John McIntyre. Dr. McIntyre began teaching at a very young age when he was in third grade. Perhaps those of you who know him might want to ask him more about that. He, be he began his undergraduate work at Stanford University as a pre-med major, but never regretted changing his major to American literature. He received an MDiv from Princeton Theological Seminary and a PhD from the Graduate Theological Union at Berkeley in theology and literature. He's been an administrator and a teacher at St. Mary's College in Moraga, California. And he has a variety of personal interests, um, including the challenges of working in the inner city, of tackling mountains, and of working in psychiatric hospitals. But the things that give him the most pleasure and joy are things that um, sound wonderful just uh, thinking about. Walking on the beach, playing Bach, listening to jazz, and dancing with his wife, Marilyn. Aww. <laughs> Although I do not know Dr. McIntyre myself personally, I have passed him on campus, and the things that I have noticed and every time we pass is his approachability, the warmth, the uh, kind of little twinkle in his eye, and all the things that tell me that he is a person with a very warm heart. And so it is my ple pleasure to be able to introduce to you Dr. John McIntyre. Thank you, Jane, for that kind introduction, and uh, thank you, John, for that great music. Uh, will you please uh, stand and, uh, for the reading of the gospel? Now great multitudes accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife and children, and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and take counsel whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is a, yet a great way off, he sends an embassy and asks terms of peace. So therefore, whoever of you does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltness be restored? It is fit neither for the land nor for the dunghill. Men throw it away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Here ends the reading. You may sit down. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, 
our strength and our Redeemer. Mary and Tom were walking in the mountains when they spotted a bear about 50 yards in front of them. The bear had heard them coming and was looking right at them. The bear growled. Tom's knees began knocking and his teeth chattering. He froze. Fear paralyzed him. Mary sat down, opened her Jansport backpack, pulled out her Nike cross trainers, and began to lace them on. Surprised and still panic-stricken, Tom blurted out, Mary, you can't outrun a bear. And Mary calmly responded, I don't have to. I only have to outrun you. My fear is that's all you're going to remember from this chapel talk. <laughs> the wrong way to interpret this story takes its literal meaning and applies it rigidly to everyday life. This way says life is competitive. For one person to live, another, and in this case, maybe someone close to you, must die. Darwin was right. Survival of the fittest perfectly describes life. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. You've got to look out for number one. These cliches become fixed ideas, and we use them to justify whatever behavior we like. We look out for ourselves no matter what happens to someone next to us. Another way to interpret this little joke is simply to take it as a reminder that, as one playwright says, death comes for us all. In this interpretation, we are reminded to take responsibility for our lives in the face of both death and any impending danger. We might be reminded of the ways in which we face life and death alone, how we are individually responsible for decisions in the context of community and in the face of forces that challenge us, not only death, but all of its manifestations. The bear in this interpretation can stand for disease or economic hardship, our own pride, envy, or anger, isolation, loneliness, failure, anything that closes down our options is the bear. At times, each one of us faces a lack of vision, the real feeling that there uh, are simply no paths ahead, no doors open to any positive future. In this moment, we face the bear. Our only future is our present reality, and there is, as Sartre said, no exit. And some of you have experienced rituals around Thanksgiving as a form of no exit. Uh, I myself have, and I'm not going to uh, excite you and thrill you with the details of that in public, uh, but I know what it is. Uh, sometimes Thanksgiving doesn't open up, it closes down. When rituals don't create new possibilities, they close down. They ossify, that is, they become hard like a bone. Sometimes the tradition remains when the families change. Uh, who shows up around that famous turkey may change from year to year. Uh, people get married and bring new partners or leave. They get divorced and leave or bring another partner. People are born, there's a new baby, or people die. For many Americans, the only thing that stays the same on Thanksgiving is 
turkey. Now, what happens when one of your friends becomes a vegetarian? In honor of our vegetarian friends, one Thanksgiving, we omitted the turkey, and our children will never let us forget it. The tradition of turkey uh, in America, the United States, for Thanksgiving is engraved in stone. When any ritual does not open up to the future, it's dead. The only guarantee of promise for the future is the identity and presence of Jesus Christ. Now, most of you will find yourselves this Thanksgiving in a situation in which happiness and difficulty will coexist. And wherever you are in the, the next few days, you're bound to run up against both tradition and change at the same time. You yourselves have changed, I hope, since the beginning of the semester. You have encountered new ideas, and perhaps you're considering doing things differently in your own life. You may be returning to family in which significant changes are taking place. You may have to adjust to your family. Your family may have to adjust to you. How will a message about hating your family help you at Thanksgiving? <laughs> what does Jesus mean in this passage anyway? Joke about Mary and Tom reminds us that we all face danger and change and death. Tom is in a situation of no hope. Some of you live in families with little or no hope. Families take on the character of Greek tragedies with members fixed in stuck roles. Only Jesus Christ can liberate us from our stuckness. For many Americans, the media image of a happy family is not accurate, it's sentimental. The smiling moments of happiness in advertisements occur far too infrequently in real families. In fact, one only has to be reminded of the problem of domestic violence to see how far we, removed we are as a culture from Christian love. Most instances of violence, and I'm thinking also of murder here, occur within families. The emotional charge in families is staggering. The Surgeon General reports that every 15 seconds in the United States, every 15 seconds, that is, did you hear me? Every 15 seconds in the United States, a woman is battered by her husband, boyfriend, or live-in partner. One-fifth to one-third of all women are physically abused during their lifetime. And these are only the most glaring statistics. Dysfunctionality is so epidemic in families that speakers often refer to it as a general condition. Dysfunctionality is like sin. It pervades every family. It often masquerades as a virtue. I'd like you to think about that with me a little bit today. In which a son's love for his mother may replace a responsible love with his wife. Or a daughter's love for her father may replace a responsible love for her husband. Into this very situation in which our options close down into one or another manifestation of death, God appears mysteriously, centuries ago, with words that live in the present tense. The gospel words give us an alternative word of promise to culture's words of death, words which invoke tradition in fixed ways that overtly or covertly try to force this present moment into a rigid, timeless reality. Into the static reality, God moves dynamically more like a whirlwind than an unchanging kingdom 
of fairy tales. Would you like to see God this week? Would you like to get your life in order? Would you like to know how to order your priorities at this time of year? Would you like it if your professors would cancel the tests for tomorrow? If you face uncertainty at home or in school, in relationships, or about any aspect of your present or your future, God's directions are clear. Here they are. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. This is a difficult saying on the surface because it seems to contradict other messages we get in the Bible. Everyone knows that God is love. How could he ask us to hate? We all know that the first and greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. The second commandment is like the first, to love our neighbor as ourself. Why would God ask us to hate all the people who are close to us and even our own life? Doesn't God contradict himself here in the 20th chapter of Exodus? Fifth commandment tells us to honor our father and mother. Absolutely, no conditions. What could Jesus possibly mean by making this commandment into an if-then clause in which we are enjoined actively to hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, and even our own life? In New Testament times, people chose only one teacher, unlike schools today, Students followed and obeyed their teachers absolutely. One of the conditions of being Jesus' disciple is hating all members of one's family and even one's own life. This doesn't mean a psychological hatred uh, as much as it means choosing only one master. Once someone was talking to a great scholar about a younger person, someone said to the scholar, Oh, so-and-so tells me he was one of your students. The scholar replied, He may have sat in some of my classes, but he was not one of my students. To be a follower of Jesus Christ is not to just come along for the ride. It's not just to create a line in your resume. It's not just an opportunity to sit in the front row at church or to stand and be seen in a favorable light by many people. Being a follower of Jesus Christ is not a matter of being entertained. Being a follower of Jesus Christ means hating in the sense of letting go of every other relationship that comes between you and Jesus Christ. Submitting every other relationship to your relationship with Jesus Christ, taking up your cross and following him. Jesus tells us not to hate, but to love our enemies. Another uh, valuable saying, I think, for Thanksgiving. First John, first John, the letter of First John, identifies hatred with the old times before Christ. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in the darkness still. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and in it there is no cause for stumbling. But he who hates his brother is in the darkness, does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Two things you should know about today's passage. First of all, Jesus' saying occurs while he's traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem and the cross. The journey that began with 12 disciples in chapter 8 has now attracted great multitudes. Luke arranges his story so that Jesus alternates speaking to the disciples and crowds with speaking to the Pharisees. 
First, Jesus addresses the crowd about the kingdom of heaven. And this is about chapter 13. Then he speaks to the Pharisees about his lament over Jerusalem. Then in this passage today, he turns immediately again to the crowds, tells them the demands of discipleship. Then he tells the Pharisees three parables. Then he tells a parable to the disciples. You can follow this all in Luke between chapters 13 and 17. Pharisees reject this teaching, so Jesus tells them the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And finally, in chapter 17, Jesus turns to the disciples to teach them about faith as a grain of mustard seed. Well, this back and forthing between Jesus and the Pharisees. This is the process on the way by which Jesus creates around himself the true people of God. On his way to death, Jesus lets everyone know precisely what it means to follow him what it means to be his disciple. So the first point to see in this passage is that Jesus sets forth the conditions of discipleship in the context of winnowing out any who would not be faithful to him and the cross. Second point, the Greek word for hate is miseo. I think we get our words misery and miserable from this word. God does not want us to be either miserable or miserly in this world. So what could this verb mean? In what sense could we possibly be called to hate those closest to us? Hate doesn't mean angry judgmentalism here. It means letting go of everything that comes between you and Jesus Christ. Bible is the most realistic book you will ever read. And it's realistic about hatred as well as love. Matthew records Jesus saying to his disciples, Brother will deliver brother up to death, and the father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. Luke records that Jesus says, Blessed are you when men hate you. And when they exclude and revile you and cast out your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Let's hear that one more time. Blessed are you when men hate you when they exclude you and revile you, cast out your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. The cost of discipleship is to risk being hated. When Jesus arrives at the temple in Jerusalem, he says, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and kinsmen and friends, and some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Then he mysteriously adds, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. We see this paradox at the heart of the matter. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there shall my servant be also. Being willing to be hated by the world 
is an essential condition of cost of discipleship. Not only will you be hated by society as disciples of Jesus Christ, but you will remember that God himself is no stranger to hatred. God hates and repudiates all evil. Repudiation is one meaning for hate in the Bible. God loves righteousness and hates wickedness. With the verb hate, Jesus drives an unbreakable wedge between himself and all other relationships, even life itself. This is the clear meaning of the affirmation, Jesus is Lord. No other relationship in any sense takes priority over this one. Any person not willing to put Jesus Christ absolutely first in his or her order of priorities is not worthy to be called a disciple. Why should we put Jesus Christ first? Some of you may say simply because he tells us to. That's a fine answer. Others of us need reasons. Here's a small list. Jesus Christ is the one who shows us who God is. When we hear the story of Jesus Christ, we hear a description of God. This is the story. God sent his son into a far country to live, suffer, die, and be raised in order that we may inherit eternal life. The Son shows us what true life is. The Son is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God himself is love. The world is not defined by success or fame or money or family unity or nationalism, but by love. What finally matters is hardly my grade point or any other victory but the victory of love. What matters is something attainable, something possible. What matters is love. Not solely on human terms, not my idea of love only, but God's idea of love. Disinterested love is how Jonathan Edwards puts it. Benevolence to being in general is his definition of true virtue. And Bonhoeffer says, Jesus as the man for others. Well, what does this mean practically? Hating in our passage is not psychological hatred, but a radical reordering of priorities. Not so we can conveniently put Jesus at the top of our priority list and then any other close second, such as family or nation or success or wealth. No, as a result of hearing this passage, we rewrite our priority list altogether. What does it look like? Do we simply write Jesus Christ on the priority list, and that's that? No. We also have to respond to the second verse, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. In this passage, Jesus assumes that the great multitudes want to be his disciples. Taking up their own individual crosses and coming after him is prerequisite to discipleship. This is so important that Jesus rewords and enlarges this idea almost immediately. He says, so therefore... Whoever of you does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. One poet in our midst has written these lines. Let it go. Let it all go. Martin Luther saying, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. So what happens to our priority list? I say we throw it out completely. 
I say, we don't have a, have a list any longer. I say, we don't have a piece of paper that's labeled values clarification. We have the person of Jesus Christ. We become followers on the way, giving up even our lists to follow Jesus Christ. If we glory, we glory only in the cross of Christ. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most. I sacrifice them to his blood. In his cross, love and sorrow meet. It's still not clear why we should want to claim the cross of Christ. Why should we make such a claim? We make it only because elsewhere on this journey, we've already seen evidence of love so amazing, so divine. When Jesus Christ enters into our world, good takes over evil. Beauty triumphs over what is ugly and sordid. Truth subverts falsehood. Why do I say subverts? Because God triumphs not only from the top down, but from the bottom up. God enters human history as a babe in an out-of-the-way village to an otherwise undistinguished set of parents. He does not come with force and violence, demanding his own way, but with vulnerable love, risking rejection, receiving scorn and humiliation. Even his own disciples could not stay awake during his time of trial. None were faithful, not one. He entered history through the back door. Because it was God entering, he made the back door into the front door. He upset the order of things, loved the outcasts, touched the lepers, healed the sick. To all who did not have hope, he gives hope. A stumbling block, he confounds the wise. He made it so that things would never again be the same way for anybody. He let loose Holy Spirit, who can open the doors to the future for any person, in any place, at any time. Even at times of rigid rituals or fixed relationships, Jesus Christ showed Gentiles and all people how mysterious God is. All life became holy in his presence and becomes holy in his presence. In Jesus Christ, we are all invited to play a significant and meaningful part in the drama of salvation. A few words on what this looks like. When Jesus Christ is the object of one's love, family members are free to love one another. Love for family is no longer more important than love for the world. It's still important, but uh, it's not so easy to adjust these things. It doesn't use you up, uh, but love for family empowers you to go out in the world and do what God has called you to do. Family is not an idol. When people follow Jesus Christ, the family may rightfully break apart. This is God coming not as a peace, but as a sword. When individuals follow Jesus Christ, then no unnatural relationships develop. Parents and children do not abuse each other. Husbands and wives are set free to love each other. Excessive dependencies, over-dependencies, co-dependencies, whatever you want to call them, do not occur since the follower of Jesus Christ depends entirely on God. Each person is first of all in relationship with God and only afterward in relationship to each other and the world. This means that each relationship is defined, first of all, by God's caring and compassionate love. Each person's life is set free to be however inward or outward God requires. Each person is set free in immoderate hospitality without being bounded or limited unnecessarily or unjustly by the limitations either of our pained family members or by the limitations of our good family members. For it's often our virtues that cause us the most problems. 
are good parents who, in making what they think are good and fair demands, may create a tension with the gospel. But the gospel is a clear no and a clear yes. The no is to anything that conflicts with Jesus Christ, and the yes is everything that Jesus Christ commands and promises, endorses and permits. The wedge must stay driven between Christ and culture before we affirm the ways that Christ is in culture. When Christ is in culture, he transforms it. And this love, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Amen. Go in peace. You're dismissed.